If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. So Peter has a house down on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He was a fisherman. His mother-in-law happened to be living at the house. Yes, he was married. But she was not doing so well. She was not very healthy. She was actually on her way to dying. En route, though, to Peter's house, Jesus started healing people. And that's what you're going to read in the first part of Matthew 8. He heals, he heals the servant of a centurion. Now remember, the centurion is part of the Roman guard. He's an officer. He has 100 people, at least, under him. But there's one thing that connects all those healings, not just that, but it's what he said after the centurion said, Lord, please heal my servant. For if you'll do that, I know you can do that if you simply say yes. Jesus responded, probably most remarkably, in verse 10, where he says, now remember, this is a Roman he's talking about. Where he says, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. As you might expect, once he got to Capernaum, a crowd started to gather again. And Jesus instructs the apostles, he says, I got to get away from this. He instructs the apostles to sail away to the other side of the sea. Just so you know, the Sea of Galilee is about a third the size of Lake Tahoe, just to put things in perspective. Now, they didn't have their Evinrude. They were depending on either the winds or the arms. If you've ever tried rowing upwind, you know how difficult that is. That's where we pick up today's scripture, from Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. When he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. Jesus was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, Why are you, afraid you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and sea, and it became perfectly calm. The word of the Lord. Father, lead our hearts and minds this morning as we delve into the word that you've put in front of us. Amen. How many of you have gone skydiving? This is a, one, two, anybody, three, good. In the 1980s, I tried it. 
And I want to describe it to you because it's a very special event in a person's life. In the mid-80s, I was down in Southern California. I was in the military. I was a pilot. I was also a licensed commercial pilot, so I was very familiar with aircraft. I was very comfortable in the air. Buddy and I said, hey, let's try this out. So we called a skydiving center down at Paris Lake. Many of you may know where that is. And the following Saturday morning, we attended a four-hour class on how to skydive. Now, you have to remember, mid-80s was before they had this tandem skydiving thing. You were on your own once you left the plane. <laughs> so the class included what equipment you had to wear. It included the various positions you were supposed to be in for the various parts of your flight. It included the emergency procedures, just in case that main chute doesn't open. And finally, it included practicing your parachute landing fall off of a four-foot wall. We honored them. Okay. So I want, you, I want you to imagine I'm on a four-foot wall and I have to practice jumping off and rolling so that my knees and my hips and my elbows and my shoulder land so that I don't break anything. Because if you land stiff-legged, you're going to break something. You're going to hurt a joint because you're coming down a little faster than you may expect. So we practiced those off of that four-foot wall. Then we went to lunch. <laughs> After lunch, we returned to the classroom and went through the door that led to the hangar, which is where our suits were and where our parachutes were, and where our helmets and our goggles were. And we donned them all. Then we walked out to the plane. This is a small plane. This is not like you see in the movies. There were five students, one jump master, and one pilot. It was very crowded. Because in this small plane, there were no seats other than the pilots. In fact, there was no passenger door. So we all walk out to the plane and we get in. And in the back, we're sitting with our knees pulled up to our chest with our parachutes on our back. And we're huddled in the back. And the jump master gets into the passenger side. And he looks at the pilot. He says, let's go. And the pilot runs down the runway, takes off, gets up to a few thousand feet. And we're all in the back going, You know how they say uh, there's no atheists in a foxhole? No atheists in the back of a plane when you're getting ready to skydive for the first time. One by one, the students would slide on their bottoms toward the door, hand your static line to the jump master who then connect that. Now, static line is the thing, the first five jumps, you can't pull your own cord. They don't allow that because you just don't have the wherewithal to do it. So that you connect a cord from your your, uh, your ripcord to the plane so that regardless of what happens, it's going to pull it for you. So you hand your static line to the jump master who clips it onto the plane and then you walk out to the edge, kind of slide out there, out to the edge of the plane. 
and you take your left foot, you put it on that one foot peg that's out there, and then you reach out there to the strut for the wing. The wing's right up here. You're reaching out there, and you're hanging on, and you're, you're trying to stay as much in the airplane as you can. <laughs> and then the jump master says, okay, put your right leg out there. There's nothing there. <laughs> and I got a 70 mile wind in my face. And I look over at the jump master and he has this maniacal grin on his face. And he turns and he looks at the pilot and the pilot goes, and the jump master turns back and looks at me and goes, go! <laughs> and you release your hands and you push off. And there's two seconds of my life that I don't remember. <laughs> the next thing I remember was feeling the yank as the parachute started filling above me. And I went, oh, oh, I'm alive. I have no idea what happened in that two seconds. Well, I have a pretty good idea. I looked very similar to that, what the picture up here. I actually have a picture somewhere, but it's buried so deep in the archives that I couldn't find it. Today, I'd like to talk about faith. You see, faith requires two parties. Somebody has to choose to act in faith. The other party has to be faithful to fulfill that promise. The person who packed my parachute fulfilled his or her part of the deal because it opened. I had to act in faith though. I didn't know that person. They didn't owe me money. They had no reason other than it's the right thing to do to pack that chute correctly. We act on faith daily. Perhaps it's something as simple as driving around town. We anticipate and we expect the other drivers to stay on their side of the road, whatever their side happens to be, right? Here in the North America, it's on the right side. Go to Japan and try that and see what happens. We expect them to stop at red lights and stop signs. We take it on faith that they have some competence in steering that machine that they're driving, that 4,000 pounds of metal, at whatever speed they happen to be going. This is not bumper cars in an amusement park. This is serious stuff out there. We take it on faith that the other drivers are going to follow the rules. Perhaps it's dealing with your physician. Physicians go through many, many, many years of training so that when those test results come back, they can properly interpret them. They can properly diagnose what's wrong with you in my case, there's some brain damage going on, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> then they can prescribe the correct treatment. That takes faith on our part. To take that tablet that they're telling us to take, or to undergo that procedure that they're telling us to undergo, when in fact, I don't feel like I have a lump in it. I mean, I, it, apparently there's a lump in there somewhere that they want to take. And I'm working on faith that they know what they're doing. As a parent, 
I'm responsible. By the way, I ran all this stuff past Katie last night, just to make sure. And uh, she said, Dad, after the whole thing was done, she goes, Dad, you know what I found the coolest? I said, what's that? She goes, Jesus was just so cool in the boat. I mean, he was just like, guys, what's the problem here? That was my 18-year-old daughter's response to this whole thing. I was like, well, good. I'm glad she's got that out of it. As a parent, I'm responsible for teaching her whom to trust and whom to not trust. It's a tough job. You've seen it, probably done it a lot of times, the parent in the shallow end of the pool. The parent is in the pool, the arms are outstretched, and he's saying or she's saying these words of encouragement, jump, I'll catch you, right? You know you've been there. And the child, in the meantime, is bouncing nervously on the edge, got little water wings on. And they're working up the courage to take that leap. The parent's saying, go ahead, put that leg out there. I'll catch you. Later in Matthew, chapter 14, after feeding the multitudes and with five loaves and two fish, remember that story, Jesus sends his disciples away, again, in a boat. There they are on the shore. They're sending his disciples away on a boat to get away from the crowd. Matthew 14, 26. When the disciples, eh, let me back up a little bit. Yes, okay. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, oh, let me go up to 23. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Kind of sounds like earlier in the book of Matthew, doesn't it? And in the fourth watch of the night, that's about 3 to 6 a.m., by the way. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Remember Katie's observation? He's so cool. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's really you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. That's all he said. Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind... Peter became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Is that us? Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. There's a fine line between bravery and foolishness. Okay. And I use that line on my daughter frequently and on her boyfriends. <laughs> Often in our youth, we find ourselves, especially in our youth, we find ourselves on the wrong side of that line. 
Perhaps our trust was in ourselves, sometimes called bravado. As a young teenage boy, I remember, actually preteen even, I would take my bicycle and run it off these ramps that I had built out of scrap wood, and sometimes they would collapse, and sometimes I'd go flying into the air and do my best to hold on, and sometimes I'd end up in a heap. Sometimes it was the curb that I ended up on a heap on, other times it was grass. Sometimes we put our faith in a, quote, friend, and we end up being humili humiliated. Maybe we damage somebody's property and we end up apologizing and having to pay. Maybe we damage ourselves and end up in the emergency room. <coughs> After seeing the movie Mary Poppins, my sister and I decided to jump off the roof of the house. But we were going to use umbrellas because that will slow us down. We saw it in the movie, it has to be true. We survived, but the umbrella did not. But we realized we survived, and it was great fun. So we climbed up and we did it again. And we jumped off the roof onto the grass and it was great. And then my sister, who's two years older than I, said, this isn't very smart. Let's get some pillows and put them on the grass. <laughs> so then we went up on the roof again and we jumped onto the pillows and the first jump my sister made onto the pillows, she broke her ankle. Lesson learned, don't use pillows. <laughs> of course, we were children then. We've matured and we've gained wisdom, right? I don't jump off of the roof much anymore. I don't use pillows. But has our faith been replaced by fear? Are you afraid to take action rather than acting on faith? Knowledge is a wonderful thing. We're exhorted throughout the Old Testament and New Testament to gain knowledge. But look at the interaction between knowledge and faith. It's the seen, the knowledge, versus the unseen, which is the faith. True knowledge replaces faith. If I take a, a book and I decide I'm going to beat my hand, because of my knowledge, my experience, my understanding of the world, I realize that's going to hurt. And I'm not going to do it. And I'm not going to let Rob do it. That's knowledge. Sailing the seas has always been dangerous. Back in the 5th and 6th centuries BC, it was dangerous because the world was flat and you'd go off the edge. <laughs> we all know that. But even after Pythagoras in the 6th century BC and Aristotle in the 4th century BC convinced most of the world that no, it's not flat, it's spherical. I was going to say round, but that's not correct, right? It's spherical. The 16th century Lenox Globe had this wonderful warning. Here there be dragons. Ah, oh, it was great. But by risking and exploring new places, we gain knowledge. By trying things, we gain knowledge. Too often, that knowledge supplants our faith. The more science discovers and declares factual, the more short-sighted we seem to become. 
While still theoretical, the Big Bang theory is taken as fact, and our faith-based interpretation of Genesis wanes a little bit. Our faith becomes anachronistic, and knowledgeable people start to ridicule us. After all, it's only a matter of time until we discover all the secrets of the cosmos, right? No, that's not right. For wherever knowledge ends, faith begins. One more time. Where knowledge ends, faith begins. I'm excited about the future. Someday, uh, this week you've heard Billy Graham quoted a good bit. In an interview decades ago, he said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. This is Billy Graham speaking now. Don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. That's the faith beyond knowledge. I'm excited about the future. The technological breakthroughs, the medical advances, the new creatures, plants, the worlds, the, and the universe that will be, quote, discovered. It's not as if we create them. We just kind of stumble onto what's already there that was created many, many, many millennia ago. These discoveries, though, don't diminish my faith in God. They confirm it. God does miraculous things through ordinary methods. I suspect you've heard the parable about the, 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 the faithful man in the flood, right? I, okay, for those of you that haven't, I'll keep a real short version here. So if you've heard it, bear with me. A faithful man was in his house, and the police came and told him to evacuate, for a flood was coming. He replied, God will save me. And he stayed at home and started praying. A few hours later, the water was halfway up the wall. And the National Guard came in a boat to rescue him. And he replied, replied, no, 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 I don't need that. God will save me. So he went back in and started praying harder. A few, the next morning, he got on his roof because the water was up to the eaves. And the Coast Guard came in a helicopter to rescue him. And he goes, no, God will save me. The man died in the flood. And in his afterlife intake interview, he asked God, well, why didn't you save me? And God replied, I sent my police, my boat, and my helicopter. What more did you want? <laughs> God works through the ordinary in our lives. Don't let knowledge supplant that faith. Remember that fine line between bravery and foolishness? Don't mistake stupidity for faith. I'm reminded of the snake-handling Pentecostal churches in Appalachia. You know, the ones who misquote Mark, Luke, and Acts and, and think that they can prove their faith by handling venomous snakes without getting hurt. More, all too often, somebody gets bit and dies. Or how about the Jim Jones cult? No relation. This was in 1978. Jonestown, Guyana. Drink the Kool-Aid. And it was laced with cyanide. 909 people dead. Because they had faith. Heaven's Gate cult near San Diego. 1970, or excuse me, 1997. Remember that one? What, was it, what were their names? Doe and, oh, I forget. Anyway, wacko couple. By the way, he was a Presbyterian pastor's son. 
Yeah, those guys can go. <laughs> 39 people dead because they wanted to go to the spaceship that was on the other side of the comet. That's faith in the wrong thing. I'll come right out and say it. That's stupid. So where do we have our faith? Psalm 56. Psalm is replete with words of faith. And I love this one. Psalm 56. I'm going to start in 9. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. Faith involves two parties, as I mentioned earlier. Those acting in faith and the one keeping the promise. So who is your faith in? Is it in yourself? Is it in your neighbor? My faith is in a loving, omnipotent God. Not the angry God of 1700s, Jonathan Edwards. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. If you've never read that sermon, you should do so. Not for its the theological soundness, but just to see what they were dealing with back there in the colonial era. My faith is not in the pantheon of gods from Greece or from Rome or from Scandinavia even. My faith is in God's forgiveness that he provided to us through his son, Jesus, the Christ. My faith is in a God who is a loving father who wants to hear from me and he wants to share his wisdom with me. And he wants to bless me, physically, spiritually. And he wants me to share the good news. Is it time for you to step out in faith? To move that right foot out into the airstream? To risk that jump? See, God regularly presents us with opportunities to trust him. Your being here this morning is an act of faith. And he stands in the shallow end of the pool, reaching up to us with his hands. As we nervously stand at the edge, shivering, and he says, Alan, Rob, jump. I'll catch you. Amen. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Where we are, God has put you there. He has a purpose in your being there. Christ who dwells in you has something he wants to do through you and through where you are. Brothers and sisters, believe this. Go into the world in faith, knowing that God the Father, his Holy Son, Jesus, and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit will be with you. Amen.